Hi, this is Matt Parker. I'm the founder and CEO of a company called Modern Tax, but my side hustle is this newsletter, which is called the Stretch4 Insights newsletter, where you can find out about us at stretch4.substack.com slash subscribe. And this podcast is an extension of the newsletter where I'm generally talking about all the things that I do and deal with on a day-to-day basis, being a founder of a venture-backed startup, trying to manage my health and wellness as a mid-30s man living in the city, and also having a growing family. You know, I got a young, almost 10-month-old or 11-month-old at the crib uh, with the wife. And, you know, we live in San Francisco where it can be an interesting place to live. And so the Stretch Board newsletter is really designed to, to give insights around my life as it relates to venture-backed company building, health and wellness, and performance, as well as family and lifestyle. So this is episode one of the Stretch 4 podcast, which we're launching on Substack this week. Should be up on other platforms within the next few weeks. And this actual episode is kindly brought to you by Future. Future, which sponsors our newsletter and also sponsors my workout because I use the app and my trainer it provides you with a real-time application and a real person that gives you real-time fitness workouts throughout the week helping you stay in shape and stay fit this year I am going for some new personal goals uh, as far as my fitness is concerned, right now I'm right around 241, trying to get to 231. Uh, also trying to manage some of my other things like my weight, not just my weight, but also the ability to bench press, the ability to run a half marathon this year, the ability to still jump on boxes at 35. And my trainer, Alex, who is a former trainer with the Chicago Bulls, lives in South Florida delivers me customized apps on a weekly basis, five apps a week, five workouts a week. And I've been working with Future for almost two years now. You too can work out with Future by following the link in the actual listing here. But if you want to just go check it out, future.com. So to get started with the first episode of the Stretch 4 podcast, what I want to do with these podcasts is it'll first be a part of me giving me takes on things like health and wellness, things that are happening in my life, things that are happening here specifically locally in San Francisco. Uh, this is the place where tech happens. And also I will interview another founder at the end of the show. Uh, so that will be the actual process where I'll talk and then I'll run through uh, the introduction to the founder. This week we have a very, uh, good founder on the show named Andy Moan who started a company called Gated.com, which is playing defense on your inbox. And I've been using it now for about four weeks and have some good feedback around the product. And I had a good conversation with Andy who lives out in the East Bay about his life starting the company and what his goals are. So let's jump in. The first thing is I'm trying to address this week on the, on the podcast is Sober January. Many people are trying to get through to the end of the January. Me and my wife actually, uh, it was my wife's idea to do Sober January. We'd done it two years ago. I think I made it to January 30th. This year, I made it to last weekend. 
I had some drinks. One of my friends had his 38th birthday. I was invited out. Shots were flying. I had a couple shots, a couple drinks, but nothing too crazy. So I did break my sober January, but I have been pretty uh, good with not drinking throughout the week. And it really just kind of brings me to the conversation around sobriety. Sobriety is such a very, like, it's like a, a very, very popular topic now amongst friends, right? Um, some people are completely against it. It disrupts your entire social life in some cases. And then some people are really for it, right? And I would say, like, not drinking for, like, maybe the first 10 days of January and then having a little break to drink last weekend and then not drinking really this week. I will say I'm much more alert at work. I'm much, I've been very productive when I've been sober. I haven't really had an extra push of energy. That probably has to do with sleep and dieting, which are two other areas that probably need to be addressed in my life. But at the end of the day, I think alcohol is something that is a real thing. And as you get older, you know, you're in your 30s, you think about it differently. So me and my wife, Whitney, we went to this store in Hayes Valley, bought some non-alcoholic beverages recommended to us by a friend because she had came over to our house. We drank some non-alcoholic wine. It wasn't that bad. I mean, it's not wine, but it is an alternative. And I think that's really what Sober January was about for me is just thinking about alternative ways to avoid alcohol because it is helpful when you are a little bit more focused, you're a little bit more coherent, you're a little bit more present. And really it is when you have a kid because that has been one of the biggest interjections in my the past 12 months of my life having a kid. It's like the wake ups at 3, 4, 5 a.m., they're a lot harder when you've been out drinking or you've had a, even a couple drinks. So I really, really was impressed with myself for going 10 days dry to start the month. Done another six days this week. This weekend, I'm having a date night with my wife tonight, so we probably will have some drinks. But I'm doing pretty good during the week of staying away from alcohol. Would love to know how you're doing with sober January. Speaking of January... Equinox, my gym, a gym that I'm actually proud of being a member of for four and a half years nearly. And as bad as things are in San Francisco, everybody, all the big companies are laying people off. It's very hard for founders to raise venture capital right now. I'm, I'm still a proud Equinox member. I've like, if I unsubscribe, it'll, it'll have to be like very, very bad for me financially to do that. But Equinox this month, has been in the news. They, they definitely kicked off the news being very, very aggressive with their marketing. So I'm pulling up the ad here on my phone. And it's really like this whole thing is about like pushing people away from January. So like the whole big theme is like we don't speak January. And they started by January 1st, if you, if you weren't familiar, they basically said you can't join our gym on January 1st. Because we don't speak January. And everything they've done from a branding perspective, from a content perspective, for the whole month has really been around January. So th this is the first post. This is how they kicked off the year. I'm just reading this verbatim. January is a language we don't understand. A fantasy delivered to your door in a pastel-colored box. It talks about change. It wants you to start something when you should be in the middle of it. It thinks time is on your side. It needs a new outfit before it can begin. 
stalling, shortcutting, and giving up. We don't speak January. And I really like like the advertising. They, they go on to have like, why does January always want you to do things? Um, or why does January always want you to start next week? January, January wants you to find a shortcut. January promises and doesn't deliver. How are you celebrating Quitter's Day? January will not text you back next month. January thinks it has the whole year ahead of it. So, like, it is this, like, theme of, like, when you're going to the gym, you know how it is. Early in January, everybody comes to the gym. Everybody has all these new things. Like, we're starting sober January. We're doing all these, like, things that we typically don't do throughout the year, and they're not a part of our lifestyle. And one of the things I really respected about Equinox is they really utilize that as like a reverse engineering process because most fitness gyms make all their money on people who don't come. And so Equinox is a luxury gym. That's how they present themselves. I'm a big fan because like if I travel, if I go to New York, if I go to LA, if I go to Texas, if I go to Miami, any of the places where they have Equinox gyms, they're generally going to let me in with my membership. And it's very interesting how they take an approach to marketing. And I really like as a founder, as a business person, you know, trying to build a company, going there daily, it is a really like refreshing marketing move that like they're like, fuck January. And it's kind of cool because the gym has been less crowded and the people that are there always are still there. There's obviously more people that are coming, but I, I really like the marketing. I was really impressed with it. They caught a lot of flack. They got canceled, so to speak. And usually that's good for your brand because people are thinking about it. Um, and so I really was really excited about been really excited about what they've been doing in January. Uh, other than that, last week I had the chance to go to a founder's dinner. Man, one of the things that is like cool about being a founder is like if you're good or if you have friends that are venture capitalists or people that are kind of like movers and shakers in tech that are always trying to build community and they have budgets that they can do these things. You get invited to these things from time to time. Like I've obviously had to miss out on a lot in the past year, having my son Kane, you know, dealing with that. Like nights out during the week are limited. Like I find myself going home most days around five and it's like, I'm just going home. I'm going to spend time with my son. He's going to go to sleep at seven. I'm going to hopefully spend some time with my wife. I'm going to read a book and I'm going to go to sleep. Um, that's a lot of times the week, but uh, M13, which is a venture capital fund uh, that is based in LA, but one of my good friends here, Kareem, is a principal there. He just transitioned out of being an operator to a VC. And we had a founder's dinner at Elephant Sushi in Hayes Valley. It's the second time he's done it, second time I've been. And it was fascinating to meet with founders and have the perspectives. I and mean, you have at these events, you'll have a founder that's at a Series B that got funded by M13. So they're kind of like obligated to be there. You'll have someone like me who's like thinking about pitching M13, not currently raising money right now, but like thinking about building that relationship. You'll have people that are like just starting companies and you'll have maybe a couple other VCs. And so it's always good to see the like collaboration and the communities being built and the networks that are being built here in San Francisco, which is this is a place where people were for a good 18 months were pretty bearish on it being the place where all this stuff is going to happen. But it's quickly starting to be rejuvenated by a kind of a different crop of people, different type of mentality, different approaches. And that's very, very good. So I had enjoyed that last week. 
I also got into like this big Twitter thing yesterday about accelerators. So this this kid, I would say, but he's not a kid because he's, I mean, he's in his 20s. Um, Josh Browder, who you may be familiar with that name because I'm also reading through a book right now. Uh, I'm going to try to highlight the books that I'm reading through uh, at least once a month or like, you know, at the end of the month. But Josh Browder, who's the son of Bill Browder, who wrote a book called Red Notice, as well as a new book that came out last year called Freezing Order about this whole like Russian conspiracy thing. And I'm actually going to write about it hopefully this month as well. But Josh made this post about this company or this accelerator called New Chip. New Chip kind of presents itself as like an accelerator, but like this is what how they describe themselves. They say the New Chip Accelerator program was developed to operate like an executive MBA program running after work hours each week and with all the assignments designed to be done at your own pace. Traditional classroom style accelerator programs virtually uh, spend no time teaching founders how to quickly and effectively raise capital. The average fundraising round for startup take, startups take takes 12 months or more with only 4% of the companies being successful. So that's their pitch. They're like, we're going to help you raise money, which it's very low hanging fruit because it's very hard to raise venture capital. Like many people don't understand that specifically if you're not in San Francisco or New York or wherever the venture capitalists are. And so that's how they kind of start. And so Josh breaks down the scam, which Josh is very good at because he has a company called Do Not Pay, which they describe themselves as like TurboTax, but for your consumer rights. So like they they do things like get you, you know, get you kickbacks on like bank fees, shit like that. They've raised some venture capital. Again, his dad is Bill Browder. So that helps. He also went to Stanford. He's also Andreessen, but he he does a very good job of breaking down some of these like things. And so this one in particular, is very interesting because what New Chip actually does is they they get you on the they try to get you on the phone they take your pitch so they get you emotionally hooked in because a lot of founders man like to be honest they're lonely out there they're not getting a lot of offers to invest in their company you know it's very hard to be a founder and so they're preying on those emotions and then what they do is they kind of tell you like we want to invest two hundred fifty thousand dollars. Like a small enough amount, but amount that is actually going to get a lot of founders like off the off their chairs. You know, if they were like fifty grand, you might not do it, but it's like two fifty. Like that's enough money for like me to get by for six months. And then they hit you with the kicker: it conveniently costs you eight thousand dollars to participate in this program. And so they'll get you in. People will literally pay this. This is like where like like most people would know like don't pay it. But people are very naive. And I remember the person who started this being on Clubhouse in its heyday in a lot of those rooms where a lot of those rooms on Clubhouse at that time were really designed to deceive people. And so this company, New Chip, Josh says, they get you with $8,000. And then when it's time to fund you, they'll say, you need a little bit more help. So continue to work with us for $300 a month. And this is like crazy that like he's showing the emails like they actually were emailing. It's so funny because like I actually got into the chat because they were emailing me up until like December 22nd. Like I kept getting this random email on LinkedIn through my Gmail. I'm like, this guy is spamming the fuck out of me. And I'm like, 
he's an analyst at like New Chip Accelerator in Austin. And I'm like, dude, I don't want to talk to people like this. So it's very, very clear that they were doing something. They're probing down like crunch-based data, pitch book data, emailing all the CEOs. And if you email like 10,000 CEOs from AngelList or Crunchbase, wherever you're getting your data from, I mean, if a couple people a week are paying $8,000, I mean, it's probably more than that. This thing's probably massive. There's probably like 10, hundreds of these founders are probably paying $8,000. And like my rebuttal, which got a little flack as well, was that the simple answer is there are two accelerators that founders should consider. Y Combinator and then Sequoia has a new art program. Anything outside of that, in my opinion, is not worth it. You're better off on your own. And the, the way I think about it is it's like getting on a plane, right? When you get on a plane, and, and we could talk, you know, Odell Beckham made this very clear with, with, with his whole incident back in November. You get on a plane, you're sitting in, you know, planes, they create all these new, like, classes. But it's like getting an economy ticket and getting a first-class ticket. They're completely different experiences. You may be on the same plane. Accelerators are all trying to do the same thing. Teach you how to raise money. Teach you how to build your product. Teach you how to be a founder, which these are generally things that you have to learn on your own anyway. But the point is, if you are going to do an accelerator, you might as well be on first class. Y Combinator, who has their own tropes, they're putting $500,000 in your bank account. They're taking a fixed percentage of your company. And they have thousands and thousands of people who have done this accelerator over the past 15 years that you can talk to in a real-time platform. That's really all you can earn is real money in your bank account and a network of people that you can talk to. And, and, and those networks can be different, right? They could be like Y Combinator. You could just email the people at Stripe. That doesn't mean they're going to help you, but they are in that network. Sequoia, which is building a new accelerator to kind of compete with YC, Theirs is a bit different, right? It's Sequoia. It's like this is the highest returning venture capital firm in the Valley, right? All the name, all the brand recognition. Come be a part of us, and we're going to help you learn how to design your, 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 your company. And we're going to give you money. We're going to invest money on it. So you're kind of getting in the Sequoia network without having to go through the, like, direct way. I mean, these things are still very selective. So, again, the trigger to me is when I'm getting emailed by New Chip, that's not very selective when a guy's like pe pe peppering me or pandering me to, to, get him to, to get me to sign up and make an action. So a lot of founders need to understand that if someone is persistently doing outreach to you, it's either good or bad. It's good if it's like a Sequoia or fucking some of these big firms that give money. If it's like somebody that's like a principal level person. Right. Like I think about it like with M13, I haven't pitched them yet, but I've been invited to two dinners or three dinners. I know Kareem very well. We sit down and have conversations. I've never really showed him the details of my business, but I know that Kareem is like, hey, I know Matt. I know Matt's interesting. I know he's a founder. I know he's building something. I got to get deal flow. I want to show him to my team. That makes more sense than me than you like me just like getting peppered by some like analyst in, in, in Texas trying to get me to sign up for something. So it's a very, very important to know that these are things that are happening, and they're going to happen a lot more now because the market's getting tighter. It's getting harder to raise venture capital. There's going to be more of these new chip things popping up, and people are going to get duped. So I, I would say one thing about this podcast is 
I want to get some of this stuff out in a more long-form conversation because I get hit up about it. You know, I'll say the things on Twitter and people are like, yeah, man, tell me more about that. But there's a lot to learn. But I would say think of it like flying on a plane. You want to have a first-class ticket. Do you want to be in a basic economy seat? And I have a story about that as well from my vacation. But like being in a basic economy seat with a kid, think of it like some of these accelerators are like being in a basic economy seat with a kid for six hours and they're on your lap. They're going to be a bad experience for you. You're not going to get money. They're going to waste your time. At worst, they're going to take money out of your pocket. So like really, really evaluate these things and these programs because it's really hard to do these things. And you make it harder on yourself when you believe this accelerator is going to be the gateway drug to get you successful, to get you to raise money. When many times, a lot of times, they're just going to take extract value from you because they're a business at the end of the day. So that's my deep dive. Founder accelerators. Maybe you want to avoid them. A few other things before we get into the conversation with Andy with that I got coming up that I want to be on the radar here for people who maybe listen to this thing. Um, hopefully it's more people than, than I plan for them to listen to this thing. But what we're doing, uh, what I got going on. So January, February is really just slow for me. It's like getting my sales functions going, getting my fundraising shit together, honestly, because I didn't, ra- I didn't raise money last year. I raised money the year before. Got to get back on the, on the, the fucking, VC train of raising money and get in line. Um, I launched a newsletter for my company called Modern Tax. So check that out, moderntax.com. Uh, the newsletter is kind of, it's a B2B newsletter. You know, what we do at Modern Tax is we are a business to business insight platform that is backed by real time data. So a lot of companies that use our platform are financial service providers, i.e. banks, fintechs. And they're trying to provide services to businesses. And what we do is on the back end, we collect public, private, crowdsourced data on businesses, primarily tax information. So 1120 data, 1040 data, all the data that people submit to the IRS or will be submitting in the next four to nine months. We try to aggregate that across various systems and we provide it to banks for a cost. So started a newsletter covering more of what we do there, just the whole data space. Uh, you know, the data as a services market is a very interesting one, and it's a very lucrative one for us, but it's also very, very interesting to see how these companies are built. And so the newsletter will focus on that company building across this space. Very excited about that. We're going to get some content going uh, this year. I'm really excited. Uh, other things. I'll be speaking on a panel. If you're here in San Francisco, I will be at the Phoenix headquarters. Phoenix is a payments, B2B payments company based here in uh, SF, founded by a guy named Richie. Very cool guy. Uh, and this is in collaboration with the Cap Table Coalition, uh, which is a syndicate that's actually investors in modern tax. Uh, and it's really built for people of color to get more involved in VC. Um, I will be speaking on a panel with... Uh, Mercedes Bent, who is an actual uh, principal partner at Lightspeed Ventures, and she's the head of their fintech division. I will also be on that panel with some folks from Cap Table Coalition, and I'm really excited about that. Uh, I think this year for me is a, is about spreading my wings a bit more, getting out, doing more things in the open, speaking, 
Uh, so I'm excited about that. Uh, the prompt for that's going to be, we're in rough times. How do we help each other rise during this time? And it's really kind of around some of these things. Like, what can we do to help each other? And when I think about that, I'm thinking about underrepresented founders or black founders or a word that I had never heard someone use. Like I, I was in a Twitter spaces is BIPOC. Um, which I don't even know what that acronym means perfectly. And that's pretty bad, but like, I never heard people kept saying that word. And I'm like, yeah, you know, people of color, underrepresented people. It's been some very dark times in the venture community right now because fundraising is getting harder and we're already, I guess the eight ball in a lot of these positions. So that panel, February 10th at the Phoenix offices here in San Francisco from five to seven 30. If you're here in the city, come through. Um, it's all free. It, it'll be an interesting conversation. Uh, some MBAs will be there from what I understand. Uh, so, you know, some well-to-do people. Uh, other than that, that is really it. Um, I hope everyone is enjoying the first part of this year. Again, I'll try to do this every week. We'll try to bring together some conversations that come up in the newsletter. Next up, I wanted to introduce you all to the guest that we're having here today on the podcast. His name is Andy Mawan. Andy is the founder and CEO of Gated.com. Gated.com is an app that I'm using. It's, I've, I've actually integrated it into my email. Um, and, you know, it's been very helpful because it's kind of, you know, you know, you get a lot of email, right? So like the email I got from New Chip, if I had had Gated, I would have never even had to hear from that guy, right? Gated puts a prompt on my email to people that have never emailed me or I've never emailed them back to give a donation to get through. And it's kind of like playing defense on your in, on your inbox. So you have your spam folder, which is stuff that you'll never get to because you'll really never see it unless you search through your spam. And sometimes stuff falls into spam. Like I had a, I had a partner that actually reached out to me today and they actually uh, were trying to get through to me, but that went to my spam folder. But in this case, gated is different because gated just screens out all the emails of people you've never responded to. And they give you like a separate, it's like an automated inbox and you can sort through that and people can like pay you a couple, not even pay you, donate a couple dollars to get through, or they can ask for you to like unblock them or like accept them without a donation. Uh, so this week, the guest is Andy who started this company He's a Silicon Valley veteran. I mean, this guy started this company through the pandemic in his late 40s. He lives in the East Bay. Uh, and, you know, I came on this app because I got gated by somebody. And I was like, yo, this is pretty fascinating. And I actually paid it, and the person emailed me back. So it's a very interesting process um, and a very interesting tool that I think everybody should have on their inbox. I mean, it costs you nothing. And you might get some money for charity. But at most, I mean, the biggest value is that you don't have to – your inbox doesn't have to be so cluttered. And you're not having to pay for like a superhuman, which costs like 30 bucks a month. That's a really interesting question. I got into tech a little bit later than most people. Like I, I, I went off to college in 91. I came back in 99 and I remember sitting on the trading floor in New York and them being like, Hey, we're finally going to get internet. Right. <laughs> it's like, great. I remember watching the, uh, Netscape IPO and, and on the trading floor and all that stuff. And so I'm like, I got this feeling for it. Then I went to business school at Stanford. I went in in 99. It was hot. Like everyone was, everything was working. I came out in 01 and there were no jobs. Right. So I think it was a rude awakening. And I spent probably six months like looking for a job. I ended up working for a really wealthy family 
that owned like the third largest movie theater chain in the country. And they were like, you can help us figure out what to do because we think movies are a business that's kind of going away and we're going to sell the theater chain. And so I helped them like build an entire new business around high end athletic clubs, which given your background, you know, might resonate, but we went out and happy to, happy to go deep there if you're curious. And I think I popped my head up in like 2008 and was like, wow, like this is fun, but it's not my family. And the Bay Area is tech-driven, and that's changing the world, so I need to get in it. I read Tim Ferriss's 4-Hour Workweek book, mm-hmm. and I was like, oh, my goodness. Like, there's ways to hack the world, and there's technology that can make it happen. And so I was basically said, listen, Odesk and Elance are two amazing companies. I want to go work at one of them. I, I have this firm belief I can go meet any CEO I want. And so I – cold called the CEOs of both of them, had offers from both and ended up working for freelance and the CEO and running kind of like special projects, business development and like business operations. And I kind of figured out what I was good at and have gone and been in tech ever since. Wow. That's a lot to unpack there. So you were able to essentially, you work for this family office. What is it? Was it a big, you said it was a luxury gym. I mean, I go to Equinox, which is now the, the yeah, luxury if you go, gym. if you Google like Villa sport. Yeah. So it's basically there are, you know, these clubs were costing 25 to $30 million to build. We, we tried to buy lifetime fitness and we couldn't. Mm-hmm. And so, but we, I probably studied a hundred high end athletic facilities. I hired a management team and we kind of came to the conclusion, you know, we tried to buy like Pacific athletic club and some other things like that that probably resonate with you. Mm-hmm. And we couldn't buy any of them for the right price. And, you know, Pacific athletic club, there's a fascinating story behind it. It wasn't really for sale at the time. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of said, let's build it. And this family owned a lot of real estate. And so, yeah, there's, I, I guess there's 10 to 15 of them right now. And they, they sold the theaters and that's their new business. And obviously with COVID, like health clubs are a little bit more challenging, but, um, <laughs> and I haven't stayed fully in touch, but I believe there's one in San Jose. I believe there's a bunch in Oregon and different mm-hmm. places like that. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty fascinating. And so you coming out of that, you know, you said that, you know, you wanted to figure out how you could build, you know, what was in it for you to build that type of wealth. And you did have the GSB experience. Did the GSB experience, I mean, then in the 90, 1999, what was that like? And that now it's still obviously the most highly returning business school education you can get, specifically as it relates to technology. What were things there that you picked up beyond like your network or the learnings that gave you the ability and audacity to go reach out to CEOs directly? Was that something you already had before that, or was it just being in that culture that were you kind of given that inspiration to 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 have that type of confidence? Yeah, I mean, I don't candidly think I learned a lot in the GSP, right? Like, I think it was, I went for the network. Mm-hmm. But I mean, every class was basically the same, right? Whether it was strategy, operations, whatever. It's like, let's talk about a case study. Let's do this and, and let's learn. I, I think there were two or three classes where I learned just an inordinate amount. But, you know, the fact that you're not learning like what a CRM is and how to manage a sales team and how to handle product and all stuff, the, the real world applications are not that high. I think I went into Stanford in 99 and it was just like, Jesus, you could sneeze and get a great job. Mm-hmm. And so I just focused on having a great time and meeting people. Like I write the class column. I, so I've always been fairly outgoing. I think I had to learn. Like I, I have had the misfortune of being unemployed in the 01 recession and in the 08 recession and where I kind of left my job in the 08 one. And, and so I had to like 
hustle to network to do things right and and so I kind of built that skill set and taught myself kind of how to do that versus like learned it at the GSB for sure. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And now talking about a little bit more about you now, you know, you've been in the game, you've worked across various different experiences as a professional, as an operator, now as a founder, how next part of the kind of our series we like to talk about is, you know, founder health It's something that's very taboo. We don't hear a lot about how do you maintain your health? How do you maintain your, your both mental, physical health, household relationships? So you seem to be, you're a guy, you've, you're still at it, still building a, an early stage startup. How do you think about lifestyle and how important is it to you across as, as far as like managing your health as a founder? Yeah, great question. It's it's one I've, I honestly, I've probably done 50 podcasts and no one's ever asked it. So I, I enjoy it a lot, Matthew. It's a, it's a good question. I'd say on the physical, unlike the eating well side, we eat at home. My wife cooks a lot. Um, we eat good stuff. And, and so I feel like I'm eating very, very healthy. And like with COVID, when you're not going out as much anymore, like mm-hmm. you're just eating really healthy. I'd say we have a, one of the key things we had was when we moved out of the city, we built a gym in the house. And so that's made life a lot easier. I probably do it two to three times a week. My wife, maybe like four or five. So it, that is a good part, right? It's like, I, I don't have to get in a car to go work out. Um, so I'd say on those sides, it works pretty well. Could probably be better. Um, but I think the other thing I try to do now that I'm working home from COVID is try to take a walk between when the job wraps up and when you start the family side, right? To just kind of separate those in my mind. Mm-hmm. I've even found like, I'll take a call at five o'clock every day. I won't take a Zoom because that from five to 5.30 is like my, just get away from the computer side. So I think that's been important. The other thing I think I've learned about myself is I still identify too much with my job, right? Like splitting my self-identity between job and that, right? Like I admire, and I'm always working in my own head of how do I be okay if gated succeeds or fails versus like tying too much of my own worth into that. The other thing I found about myself is I tend to really, really go hard at whatever I'm working on, right? So about four years ago, I had a life coach and I was like, I'm growing culture ramp. We took it from $4 million to $80 million in four years. And I had just massive responsibility and big teams and, you know, dealing with global people all over the world, like calls in Australia in the evening, calls over here in London in the morning. And, and so it was a lot. And I would work, I, I didn't, I wouldn't draw very good boundaries, right? So I talked to life coach and she's like, well, you need to get something on the side that you can work on. I'm like, I've never been a hobby person. And like, I, that's cool if you want to build model boats or play with whatever, but I'm more social, right? So if it's not around data or, or social stuff. Like I'm going to, I'm not going to be able to like sit there and video game for four hours in the evening or something like that. So I've never really had a hobby, but I had this thing on the side that I hacked together, which was gated. And she's like, well, that's interesting. Why don't you keep playing with that thing, right? And mm-hmm. eventually it kind of started taking off and everyone's like, can I get that? Can I give you money for it? And so it ended up kind of <laughs> during COVID was a weird time, right? Working full-time, jo- like massive full-time job, half childcare with kids and running a startup on the side in the evenings with the Russian developers mm-hmm. was intense. Mm-hmm. I think now I'm more at a place where I've just got the one thing plus the family, but I still am not very good at drawing lines and being like, okay, I'm done with it, right? Because it's like, as a CEO, like, 
every minute you spend time on it is pushing it forward. I think I've done a lot of good thinking around like, how do I be okay? Just letting it go for the evening. If that makes sense. Yeah. That's an interesting concept. And so what do you, you now run gated as far as like one of the areas I think that's I've learned a lot about in the past year, obviously having a kid in the past year, sleep is very critical. Do you have like specifics around sleep regimens? Like, are you getting, are you like, and I ask that just because like you're talking about working across different time zones. I know a lot of founders that, that do that. You have engineering teams in, in Russia or the Middle East or India, and you're trying to kind of manage those calls and manage those teams while you're here in the States, you're on PST. How do you make sure you're getting enough rest? Have you seen how rest or sleep can affect your, your throughput, your work, your energy? Do you, do you have any kind of specific tools or hacks that you use to kind of mitigate that or, or manage that? Well, we don't have, we had, we started off with Russian folks, but we realized just time zones wise was hard for collaboration. So everyone for us is in the U.S. time zones. Mm-hmm. It's actually the best I've been in a while, right? Mm-hmm. Like <laughs> at Box and Upwork and Culture Amp, I always had global teams that mm-hmm. were, I had people reporting to me in all different time zones and you'd have to take the early call or whatever. Like I'm pretty good with control of my schedule. Um, it's more. I still, I can still analyze this or ping these extra people. And it's like, when do I turn it off? But I'm getting better-ish at that. Mm-hmm. I think for me, the challenge with sleep is sometimes and probably one day a week, my mind will just race and I can't turn it off. And so I think the don't lie in bed, don't let it cycle, get up, read for an hour and then go back is kind of the best way I've found to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And sleep, we talk about sleep and we talk about making sure you're getting enough rest. I think one of the things that is another area where we don't talk a lot about as founders is around, you know, just health and as far as personal financials. We've been inundated with a lot of stories lately in the news, you know, SBF, many different stories in 2022 about founders and companies that end up not doing as well as they were doing. And, you know, founders have taken money off the table to buy themselves things. You have a unique experience where you've worked as a professional and an operator at some very notable companies and you've been in the technology sector for, you know, over 20 years. But as a founder, how do you approach financial health, right? Or personal financials? How do you think about your personal balance sheet and how you're managing, obviously, with a family and a home? And how do you kind of convert that with this like startup mentality? Pay yourself as little as possible, hustle, eat top ramen, try to get by on as little as possible. How do you mitigate that as a, as a, as an early stage founder? Yeah, yeah, I'll do it. Then I'm excited to follow your newsletter and learn how other people do it too. It's a good question. I'm later in career, right? Like I'm not a 25 year old founder. Like I have, I have been a senior executive at three unicorns. My wife is also a senior exec. She's a VC. And so I don't take much money. I've never taken anything out of the company. I'm betting on the equity, but we're still fine. Mm-hmm. Nice. That's a good. We've we've put, we've put enough away where mm-hmm. it's good, and I know I can always, mm-hmm. I can always flip back to go run <laughs> a unicorns RevOps team mm-hmm. and you know make a bunch of money if I want to. Mm-hmm. So I've I have I still worry about that stuff in kind of a weird way. Of I had a friend of my dad's in 2001 when the planes hit the the towers. The guy was running aircraft leasing at B of A or whatever it was. And maybe don't put this in the, uh, in the thing because mm-hmm. it's personal and don't want 
don't want to use the specific examples, but you can use the generics. Yep. But yeah, he, he struggled, you know, he was 50 or 60 and struggled to find a new job at that point. So I think I have more of the existential worry of, I don't want to stop working, right? Like I'm not like, I'm not, some people are racing to how fast can I retire? Like I enjoy advising, working, stuff like that. And so, you know, it's like control over your own destiny is something I think a lot about. And I talk a lot with a lot of my folks, my friends, which is like, what's our second career, right? How long are you doing? I mean, like when I do what I do really well, which is RevOps or or this, which is running a company, it's fucking intense. Mm-hmm. And it's every day there's something different. There's politics. There's, you know, there's collaboration and it's intense. And so like, do you want to be doing that at 65? Or, and so I spend a lot more of my time less thinking about the financial health today and more thinking about when I'm 65, what am I doing, right? Am I advising, consulting, which I feel, I find like consulting is not the most fulfilling because you end up selling your time all the time. Yep. And so like I spend like, I have a couple of friends that have like taken that step towards the second career. And that's kind of a large dialogue with my friend group right now, if that makes sense. No, that makes sense. I think that, that that's very impact, empowering to hear it from someone who's played the game and done it where you don't have worries about day-to-day financials, but you obviously think about it from like that next step. Is there, you've been in the game now, you've you've been an operator at Three Unicorns, your wife is in the venture capital space. Is there like a specific number for you? I mean, I, I get this from a podcast that I listened to with Andre Godala and Evan Turner, and they asked like Steph Curry, like, what's your number? And Steph Curry you know, they're very candid about how much money is enough money. And Steph Curry is like, yeah. Well, half, Steph's half, got half, enough. <laughs> yeah, Steph, Steph's number is half a billion. That's his number. And they were kind of like joking, you know, LeBron's at a billion. Steph, you're only 34. You probably get earn more money. But he's like, hey, that's that's a number for me that I'm comfortable with. And I don't, I don't need to be a, striving for more. As a founder, obviously, when you raise venture capital, you know, you are put in this position of, creating an outsized return. You have to sell the big story, the big vision, the big dream. Venture capitalists have those tropes about, we want to invest in founders that are going long. They'd actually rather you just shut down your company as opposed to just building a fledgling, profitable lifestyle business. So obviously you're doing a venture-backed company. Is there a specific outcome that you are like candidly looking for or how do you how do you mitigate that with like your current you know you've already done some things you're already good from a personal financial level how do you mitigate mitigate that with driving forward to get this big outcome to become the next big productivity platform lots of good questions there i think if somebody's a superstar athlete making 50 million dollars a year and they're talking about what's my number they should just stop talking (laughs) right because honestly one years of their income and they can go live in some nice place and you're good, right? Like it's yeah. uh it's funny when people are debating whether it's two fifty or a billion income, like fuck off. Yeah. <laughs> like it's just yeah. it doesn't matter. There's no number mm-hmm. for me, I don't think in terms of a number on the personal side, right? Yeah. I just think about continuing to add add cushions so you have more control of your own destiny long term. Mm-hmm. On the company side I think you got to be in it to change the world in the way that you envision versus like, how much money can I make? At least that's the way I am, right? Like I did this because I saw a problem and I wanted to fix that problem. And, you know, we look at it and we're like, geez, there's this strategy over here, but is it aligned with why I started this company in the first place? And so there's a lot of that for me. If what I'm doing drives the change in the world that I want and I don't make a lot of money, Mm -hmm. I'm okay. You know, Steve Jobs said, 
why are we here in this universe but to make a dent in it or whatever it was, right? Like, I want to make a dent in the universe. Like, that's more important to me than how much money I make. I feel like if you build a big company, you got to be able to pull out four or five hundred k a year and you'll be fine, right? Yeah. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. So I think that whole like, do you have a number? No, man. Like maybe when I was twenty three, did I worry about that stuff? But I don't think about that stuff anymore. Yeah, that's interesting. I think more mature founders have different perspectives on that, and and I think that I respect the honesty there on on that. Transitioning from the personal financial stuff, obviously, just want to chat a bit about household. I understand that you're a father. You mentioned childcare. You mentioned things like that. How do you approach parenting as well as being a founder and trying to be a high performer as far as like making a dent in the universe? How do you mitigate those two things and maybe give me just kind of your philosophy and then maybe any kind of areas where you have to make hard decisions around family or how how have you set it up to where you're able to to, to do both to do both well? Yeah, I mean, I don't have a philosophy. I, mean, I think it's never I mean, you're, you're a new parent. Like it's <laughs> never easy or predictable or different. You know, somebody said to me, like, you become a better manager when you're a parent, which I, I firmly believe right? yeah. like, you develop a lot more patience. And, and when, when you say something to somebody, they don't do it. You figure out how to deal with it. I mean, ever since COVID, the world's different. You're home a lot more, like, especially if you work from home and I do, our gate is fully remote. So I see the kids a lot more than probably fathers would when they're trucking off to an office somewhere. And so I think I get a lot of quality time for me it's we've got a two-story house and they understand that they don't go upstairs during the day mm-hmm. you know it's it it gives me the separation during the day to focus on that you know we've got a, a nanny that takes care of them during the day and they go to school and so it's it's fine and then just when you're present you got to be present and if you can do those things i think you can you can give kids a lot of time with their parents right like that's that's the most important a lot of kids, like a generation ago growing up, their parents would go to the office and then they'd come back home late or they'd work late at the office and you wouldn't see them. But like, yeah, we have dinner together every night. Mm-hmm. And and you mentioned having a nanny. What experience or what, what, what advice do you give founders around that, having the additional assistance? I'm a, I mean, obviously, I have a, we have a nanny share. It's very helpful to have that. Hey, during the days and during work days, the kid, you know, our son is with, with the nanny share. Obviously, maybe your kids, I don't, I don't know the ages, but how important is that? How have you kind of mitigated that? What's been your process and your, you know, how have you guys approached that? Yeah, I mean, they're six and four. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're going off to school a little bit more all the time, right? So yep. it's like the older ones, eight to three, mm-hmm. the younger ones, eight to noon. So they've got a decent chunk of the afternoon with the nanny, but it's like, it's worked out really well. We've had the same person the entire time. Yeah. Um, she's terrific. And we don't overthink it. You know, it's mm-hmm. like we're, we're lucky in, in that regard. I'd say I think a lot of people in the next three years start to deal with like, okay, how long do you keep the nanny? Yeah. Like, you know, do you, do you go to the latchkey kids at some point or are you, how are you dealing with all of that stuff? And so I think a lot of people struggle with the cool, you know, my kids are at school. Like, do I need to still pay a nanny? And like, yeah. how do we do that? And who's driving them to this? Or who's driving them to that? And we'll deal with all that stuff when we, when we get to yeah, it. Yeah. Six and four. Okay. Oh, that's cool. Okay, maybe transitioning now. Thanks for being, you know, candid about that. We always try to talk to founders about some of the things that maybe aren't topic of conversation for a lot of these uh, types of podcasts and interviews. But let's get into a little bit about Gated. So I experienced Gated. I believe I was reaching out cold to another CEO of a company that I thought could be 
at least a prospect or gathering their feedback on the types of data sources that they purchase. So I could have an interesting conversation and like my response can his response came in the form of a gated email. So maybe talk me about, talk to me at the high level, what gated is, you know, for me, it was basically a way for a VC or, you know, a actual fellow founder to essentially drive his inbox to another place to give money to a charity for the right to like kind of, him to move that to the top of his inbox, which mm-hmm. I thought was very interesting because I feel like as a founder, you get a lot of, in, you know, you get a lot of unsolicited emails for, for various reasons. Yep. Uh, so maybe talk about how you all, you know, how you concepted the first startup idea. I know you said you were building it with it while you were still working at Culture Ramp. So maybe talk about, you know, just early days and how you got it to kind of where it is today. Yeah, I'll do the idea behind it first, happy to delve into more of that. I can talk about the, the early history. At a fundamental level, there is no marginal cost for anybody to reach you at any time. You don't control your own inbox. I've run revenue operations go to market and marketing at three unicorns. I've sent billions of emails. I understand this deeply. You know, I had at Culture Amp one time, somebody came to me and was like, we're sending a blast to 750,000 HR professionals. Do you want to sponsor it? And I'm like, oh my God, that sounds terrible. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, and so I know deeply that before gated, nobody controlled their own inbox. The idea behind putting a marginal cost on email has existed since Bill Gates was asked in 2004, Bill, aren't you worried about spam? And he said, no, somebody will put a postage stamp on email and the problem goes away. A lot of people have tried. So I was kind of aware of all of that stuff. Our fundamental idea is spam, you know, like Google, Microsoft, whatever it is, assumes everything should be in the inbox and then they use data to pull it out. But that's never going to work, right? Because if you're too aggressive, you're going to miss stuff. Yep. And if you're not aggressive enough, you're there. But fundamentally, you're still always putting the problem on the user. And so what we're trying to do with Gated is to force senders to think differently. And if so why should you clean up the dog shit on your lawn from your neighbor? Why don't we put up a sign and ask your neighbor politely to clean, you know, to deal with that stuff? Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of the philosophy behind it. In, in technical, like instead of assuming every inbo- email should be in the inbox and using data to pull it out, we assume if somebody doesn't know you, they shouldn't be in the inbox. And if they are, and but we want to give them an opportunity to prove that they value your time. And it's not about how much can I charge to reach my inbox. It's about a, we believe a small marginal price creates the right behaviors. And it's so powerful when it does, right? When somebody donates two bucks, they're like, wow, I respect Andy's time and they, they treat me differently. And so if somebody donates, we take that email out of the game folder and we put it back into the inbox. And so then what gets really interesting is we need this to work for both sides, right? So for the user, we're taking off 30 to 40% of the typical inbox and replacing it with a couple donated emails a month. For the sender, if you're cold emailing somebody, the reply rates are pretty miserable because you're competing against a lot of noise and crap in there, right? Like if people are coming into their inbox in the morning, they're like, my job is to delete anything I don't know, and then I'll move on to stuff. But with Gated, they're coming into a clean inbox from people they know, plus a couple donated emails. So the reply rate to a donated email in Gated is 46%, which is blew my mind, right? Like that, the fact that we're able to, by charging, actually bring people by reducing the noise for everybody, we're able to bring people closer together. Hmm. That's our fundamental belief in our mission. 
Wow. So that that's a pretty, pretty compelling story, because, I mean, if you, you know, I think from my experience, I paid two dollars and I got a response. Wasn't obviously yep. the response you might want, but you at least get the the feedback that you would would never have gotten as a as a business. You know, I, I feel like this fits in the email productivity category today. Is that is that correct? And and maybe just expound if not what what category what area of spin do you see gated living in right because like I paid I paid for this to get out of this gated jail of of unsolicited email but is it is it more of a tool that the actual end user or the person that's signing up for gated to 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 put people in this jail are they the customer or is it actually mm. a two sided marketplace I'm just trying to understand the yeah, it's it's a two-sided marketplace. The there are ten thousand or more tools helping sellers and marketers pummel you. That is not an overstatement of the number. <laughs> there are. We believe we are building the first tool for users to defend themselves. That is our mission in life. Now it happens to benefit by reducing the noise. It happens to benefit both sides of the equation, which is really important. Like we don't work if this only benefits the user. Mm-hmm. Everyone always says, well, you make your money from the people donating. So they're your customers. We do believe our first loyalty always has to be to the user, right? Like we could flip it into like, let's help people send more shit and they'll pay us for it. And we're like, yes, of course they will. But we think that we can create a much greater business if we are the first tool to defend users and that's the bet we're taking and we may be wrong, but we're having a lot of fun today. Nice. That, that, that makes sense. So maybe walk me through, I know Google and, and Microsoft are changing their algorithms for spam all the time. Yeah. Make me walk, maybe walk me through the technical challenges of building the initial gated product. Like what was that like? How did you, from, Obviously, I don't know if you're technical or non-technical, but from writing the first line of code, building an extension, building a dashboard for the end user to kind of set it up, maybe talk me through that and kind of what did you need to get out there to just be able to get this in the hands of users? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So first off, I'm non-technical and I have mad respect. I understand why VCs typically like to back technical founders. (laughs) I built the first version with a Venmo. I basically just anybody that annoyed me, I sent them a Venmo saying, I don't know you. Mm-hmm. donate 10 cents to wounded warrior and I'll read your email and people start donating five bucks, 20 bucks. And so I'm like, Whoa, there's something here. Right. So that was just me hacking the thing together. Like, I was like, okay. Then I started telling my friends about it. They're like, fuck, can I get that? Mm-hmm. So I talked to a friend of mine and he's like, well, here's Airtable and Zapier. And so I built V2 in Airtable and Zapier and I ran out of rows in Airtable. Right. So I was like, I, every day I would get in and I would delete the, the logs past the 100,000. And so I was able to give it to like 10 people. And then I went to my friend again and I'm like, dude, how do I do this? And he's like, well, I got a 16-year-old son and he's a coder. And so I hired him for summer and he built the next version. And that took it up to 100 users. And that's kind of the limit that you can go without getting Google security reviews. So then I hired a bunch of Russians and all out of my own pocket still. And doing this at night and whatever. And so they got me through Google security review. But every time we tried, every time we kind of turned on marketing, the thing would fall apart. And so we found a, I raised money. I decided, can this be big? Am I willing to bet the next two to five years of my life on it or my career if it works? And I took money 
And then we got a CTO. He built a scalable platform. And now we're, you know, we're growing 30 to 40% every month. It's not growing. I mean, 30 to 40% monthly growth is freaking awesome. But we're giving this away free and we're making money on the transactions. So we need it to be 10xing every month at this scale. And so I think we're still crossing the chasm in some ways, right? Like the people that use it, and we've got like 4,000, 5,000 users right now. People who use it love it, can't live without it. But it's still a little scary. Am I going to miss an email? Well, actually, they're just right over there. What's the impact of this challenge email on my network? Well, actually, we sent 500,000 of them last month, right? So it's people are getting used to this and they're seeing it. They're getting more used to it and we can create good experiences off of it. So it's just a new social motion, right? If you remember Calendly, it was weird for a while. You're yeah. like, what is this thing? Why would I use this? Why are you, you're making me do work to meet with you, but now it's, now it's theirs. Maybe, yeah, talk a bit about, you know, I got it from another founder, a venture back founder. I think he's raised a few hundred, you know, like 60 or $70 million from some of the top VCs in the Valley. So it's definitely getting in the hands of influencers. I would say people, they probably get the most emails. I'm assuming that's a big part of the, the go to market is, Hey, I want to make sure this is getting in the hands of people who are getting tens to hundreds of emails a week unsolicited. So maybe share a bit about first customer. Was it really just go to market, grow from your, your network and then maybe Talk a bit about when you really start to see the flywheel going or how how you see it shaping up to get that 10x growth that you're looking for a month over month. Like what type of distribution channels do you think are going to happen? Is it just high influential people sharing it with other high influential people or is there a trickle down trickle down effect? Does this trickle down through the organization to say, hey, like my CEO is using this and he's he's wanting everybody else to use it? Or is it more founder, 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 founder? Like what's your approach there? Yeah, I mean, I think our core target market is anyone who is in a B2B role that's getting sold to. That's a pretty big market. The beauty of gated, I mean, so it's highly viral with people you do not know, right? So you learned about gated from somebody that you were paying cold, I presume. But it's, but at the moment, it's, and so that's growing us a lot. Like everybody in sales and marketing knows about gated right now. Like it, we have, we have gotten a lot of awareness. Ironically, people who you do know don't know you use gated. And so that's the unlock that we're spending all of our time thinking around right now. And there, we've tested some things that have gotten some, some good feedback and some worked and, and we've rolled out and we've tested some things that have not been as, as well received, right? So it's like there's this balance to that side of things. I think at a fundamental level, we're still going through positioning, right? Like some people sign up for us and want a quiet email filter that's just going to work better than spam. Mm-hmm. That's not us. Mm-hmm. We don't look at the contents of your email ever. We are out there scolding the guy whose dog pooped on your lawn and being like, hey, man, you can do better. And so we are not a quiet filter. And so I think partially what we've been going through in our own minds over the last three weeks is we need to be really clear on what we are and what we aren't, right? So we actually tested a feature that was maybe a little bit louder for two days in December and got a lot of (laughs) a ton of signups and a ton of negative feedback on it from our users, right? So we've been going through a little bit of we need to be really clear with people, like, don't sign up for us if you want a quiet, better email filter. That's not us. Hmm. But what we are is we're going to be out there defending you and guarding you and doing all of these things. And so I don't think we've fully figured it. I mean, we've got dialed in 30 to 40% growth every month. It's great. But it's, you know, I'm 4,000 users. That's not going to get me to the millions of users I want. And so 
a celebrity or an athlete who's engaged in talking about it, those things help a lot. Um, you know, we've gotten some insanely famous people in the last couple months that are starting to use gated and that's powerful. PR is powerful. Um, you know, we can turn on ads, but that you'd rather not do that. So mm-hmm. we're, you know, we're going through some fun times just figuring out like, can you know, it's ironic, but like we're growing at 30, 40% a month. Can we grow faster? That's what we're spending all our time thinking about. Yeah. I think, it, I think it's they're intriguing. And then last question on that with, with the way you're trying to grow, do you see the gated model? You're you're not a productivity tool essentially. You're more like, hey, we're the defense. We're the first line of defense to protect your time. And I think the trends that you see now with companies like Shopify implementing these kind of rules across the company, hey, no meetings, no new Slack channels. Are you are you essentially in that area of like time and space and kind of trying to help people prioritize the things that matter and then on the back end you guys essentially make money on the transactions right now so like you get yes. money to nonprofits, which is it's it's kind of almost like a gofundme business model running how do you figure merging those two worlds and, and like kind of like because you're going for transactions you're not charging a user so you're obviously trying to get more and more people to pay where do you how is that going with 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 the monetization as it as it pertains to trend because I've never really seen it it's it's more like a transactional business model but it's a SaaS you know user experience essentially yeah yeah I mean it's interesting so a bunch of questions in there yeah. first off like we're probably in the productivity space generally but here's how I would say it's different like mm-hmm. superhuman helps you manage email faster than anybody else mm-hmm. we don't help you manage the mess. Mm-hmm. We stop the mess from ever happening gotcha. in the first place. Gotcha. So, so we are less focused on helping you improve, be productive with the emails that you have. We're trying to be able to have you just spend less time on emails that are irrelevant to you. It's gotcha. a subtle difference, but I'd say, so I think if you take the meta space, yeah, that's still productivity. In terms of our, but, but like over time, like our vision's bigger than that. You know, so then maybe let's talk about the business model for a second. Mm -hmm. Like it's kind of like a toast or a ramp, right? Like we're going to give you the thing for free, but we're going to make money on the transactions. That's, that's the other great example is like Google, right? Like you can search for free, but like we're going to charge the other side. So the model's not new and innovative on that. We're just applying it to a different space. Mm -hmm. We make very good money on work users, a lot less on personal users, like we and so what we're seeing is actually ironically like more uptake on the personal right now and so we're but you know then there's the question of like oh man are you just selling my time and so like if this really takes off am I going to get 200 donations for two bucks every time so that's something we built into the model Mm -hmm. early which is you control it's one of the three points of our manifesto I don't know if you've seen it but definitely check it out the you control how people reach you you control how much it costs to reach you, right? So you can, as a gated user, set the minimum donation, right? So we had one dude, CEO of a, of a soft bank, bank company, like he signed up. He's like, say, you know, we, we were still defaulting people to a dollar at that point in time. He got like 15 donations in like five days. Mm-hmm. And he's like, dude, this is too much. We're like, okay, yeah, dial your price up, right? So he's dialed his price up to five bucks. And now he, yeah. but our goal is really, we're going to save you 30 to 40% of your inbox. In exchange, you know, let's target putting between four and seven donations in your inbox a month, right? And then the final piece of our manifesto is you control where that money goes. 
which is you get to pick the nonprofit where it goes. And so I think that's like something we thought to really early. Like if you think about LinkedIn, you cost the same to send an in-mail to as the kid graduated from college this year. And that sucks, right? Because you get a lot of in-mails and, and things like that. And so what we really wanted to be able to do was we built that. Everybody controls their own price into the thing. Now, most people never change off of the $2, but, you know, we'll coach people that are getting 15, 20 emails, uh, uh, donations a month. And we'll be like, hey, you can increase your price. And so we've got people with prices ranging from $2 up to $15 minimum right now. No, that's amazing. And then the other cool thing on the monetization model is last month, 57% of people donated more than the minimum. So Andy Moen is the guest today founder of Gated.com. Thank you for listening to the first episode of the Stretch 4 podcast. This is Matt Parker, and I'm out.